Gospel of John, second chapter, as we continue to work through this wonderful gospel. We'll look today at the first 11 verses. When I was a kid in school, I always loved the World Book Encyclopedia. Not that I was such a great scholar, but it had better pictures. You know, it had those pictures where you have the like a picture of the human body, and then they had these transparencies. You remember these? You have a thing about the circulatory system, and you see how all the blood vessels are, and then there was one about the muscles, and see all of that, and maybe the skeleton. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I looked at one of them. I don't. I don't know if they. Uh, still have those. It's probably all on CD-ROM now or something. So you can see the whole body, you know, kind of slice at a time. Even though really it's just one body, one, one person or whatever it is you're looking at. But I was thinking about that when I was studying the text because it kind of reminds me of our, of our text here. We, we have one wonderful miraculous event, changing of the water into wine. And yet when we look at it, it kind of has several different slices of meaning that it's not like the first two verses are this and the next three verses are that and the final few verses. It's not that way. It's that you have different things all going on at once here. Different transparencies sort of that might be laid on top of each other as we look to see what the whole thing teaches us about the Lord. Well, let me read it for you. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother came to him and said, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for, by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet, banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much drink. But you save the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Well, make no mistake about it, we have a miracle here. The large number of pots, Jesus' command to fill them all to the brim with water. The huge amount of wine then created. And the independent testimony of the master of the banquet, the best man or the master of ceremonies, all confirm this eyewitness account that Jesus turned water into wine. Not just a sip. But someone said, you know, that last sip tasted like it wasn't water. It tasted like it was wine. Oh, no. 120 to 180 gallons of wine that was water just a moment ago. No mistake, Jesus did a miracle. The question is, why? What's its significance? 
What is he trying to teach us from this? Let me suggest this morning three things that I think are layers of meaning or strands of thought woven through this passage, three truths that we should learn from this miracle. The first is this, that Jesus blesses life with joy. That Jesus blesses life with joy. James Montgomery Boyce reminds us that in the 14th chapter of the book of Romans, there's a verse which says, the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He continues, in our day, many Christians have gotten the part about righteousness right. Many even have peace. But as I look around at contemporary Christianity, it seems to me that many are sadly lacking enjoy. They have the doctrine right and are even secure in salvation, but there's none of the supernatural joy and exuberance that is to be one of the outward marks of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of the Christian. Oh, but in this miracle we see that Jesus blesses life with joy. Think about the setting of this first miracle. It's a wedding party. Wedding parties are always big events for us, but in this culture they were even bigger events. They were not just a dinner after the ceremony. They were several day affairs. It might go as long as a week. Now I know Christians, and especially some of my pastor friends, who wouldn't even go to such a party. Or they would say, I'll go to the wedding ceremony, but I'm not going to the party, especially if there's drinking there. I'm not going. In fact, I know a lot of people who wouldn't think to invite any Christians or any pastors to their party. They obviously wouldn't want to come. Jesus was not out of place at this party. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, it is amazing that Jesus is welcomed and is perfectly at home in the company of people who are having a good time. Even people who were known sinners, sometimes social outcasts. William Barclay writes, Jesus is no severe, austere killjoy. <laughs> and so here in this little village, in this home of some common folks who were poor enough that they cut it too close on how much wine they provided, at least, here's Jesus. The eternal word of God. The son of God. The promised Messiah. Doing what? <laughs> Bringing joy to some common folks. Why? To save a young bridegroom from being humiliated. An act of kindness to keep his family and he from being embarrassed on this special day. What a savior, huh? He blesses life with joy. That probably bothers some of you that there's drinking going on here and that Jesus doesn't take stand against it. I remember an old friend of mine who went to great lengths to try to explain how that in the Bible it wasn't real wine, it was grape juice. And his impassioned conclusion, which is very pointed always, was, my savior is no bartender. He wouldn't serve alcohol to anyone. Well, I hate to burst my dear old friend's bubble, but the Savior turned water into wine. Real wine 
There's only one word for it. It's the same stuff that people got drunk on. To say anything else is to play fast and loose with the Bible. Just can't prove something else. And that's consistent with what the Bible teaches. In fact, in Psalm 104, verse 15, we find God being praised for, quote, making wine that gladdens the heart of man. God blesses life with joy. Does that mean drinking's all right? Well, yes and no. The Bible does not condemn drinking outright. It does not say that holiness demands total abstinence. It just doesn't say it. I'm sorry. It doesn't say that. But it does warn us and condemn every single occurrence of drunkenness. And certainly a pattern of drunkenness seen as something to be to flee from and to fight against no matter what the cost. Jesus did associate with drunkards and thieves and prostitutes, but he never approved of sinful behavior. He didn't then and he doesn't now. But see, our problem is that we've gone, in Jesus' name, so far in the opposite direction that we're often even against people having a good time. <laughs> Dr. Boyce again. Some Christians go around with grim looks and long faces. If they ever found themselves in the company of someone else who's having a good time, they immediately suspect that the cause of the fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Jesus was not like that. He did not condemn those enjoying themselves, and he was not jealous of them. As a result, he was welcomed in their company, and they listened to what he said morning I challenge your stuffy views of the Savior. I'm afraid he would feel pretty unwelcome in many church circles but would feel perfectly at home among people that we might not even invite. Jesus blesses life with joy. If you would be like him your judgmental attitude is going to have to go. Your idea that joy is suspect for the Christian life, that is to be so severe, it's got to go. Your notion that you're keeping yourself holy by having nothing to do with non-Christians, it's got to go. Jesus didn't do that. Your long face, your lack of a sense of humor, your lack of a zest for life, your black clothes, your hushed, serious tones, got to go. Jesus blesses life with joy. Bible tells us so all over the place. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. In thy presence is the fullness of joy. Thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Our kids sing it downstairs week after week. Joy, joy is the flag flown high from the castle of the heart and the king is in residence joy Jesus blesses life with joy he did at this marriage and he does today what a great savior what a great truth so we begin to understand that truth 
maybe loosen up a little bit, we'll be tempted to think then that Jesus is just here to make me happy, <laughs> to do whatever I want him to do so that I'll have more fun. That view certainly around. So we need to hear the second thing that this passage teaches us. That's this, that Jesus pursues his plans without compromise. Yes, Jesus blesses life with joy, but Jesus pursues his plans without compromise. In American politics, we long for leaders who are without compromise, don't we? We long for those who will pursue a righteous agenda with single-mindedness, no trade-offs, no concessions to the other side, no deals, just do what we sent you to Washington to do. Problem is, in order, in order to ever get to Washington, politicians already made so many deals, compromised so many times, owe so many people so many things, that there's no such thing as single-minded agenda. But Jesus is not like that. He's different. Here we see that he pursues his plan with no compromise, single-mindedness. We see it in this troubling exchange that he has with Mary, his mother, verses 3 to 5. Let me read it again. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Though Jesus had never done a miracle, Mary knew who he was. You recall the angel had explained to her exactly what was going to happen, who, what his, the identity of her son was going to be. She knew she was a virgin when he was conceived. She had watched him grow up. She knew who it was that she was talking to, though others didn't yet. And she was undoubtedly used to depending on, depending on him. He's 30 years old now. Most people think that Joseph has probably died by now. Jesus has become the man of the house. And so now Mary is involved in this wedding at some, in some way. Perhaps it's a family member of hers, and the wine runs out. She does what most any mother would do, goes to her son whom she depends on, who she knows has the power to do something about it, and ask him to fix it. We're not told exactly what she had in mind, but as a mother, certainly you would think that she would be worthy of some special consideration. Jesus doesn't do business that way. This is the beginning of his ministry. He's launched out now to fulfill the purpose for which he's come, and he pursues his plan without compromise. This explains the way he addresses his mother. He calls her woman. It's a title of respect, but it's not a title of intimacy. He doesn't say, oh, mom. It's kind of a title like if you're down south and somebody says, yes, ma'am. It's respectful, but it's not intimate. And then he challenges her request. Why did you involve me? Actually, it literally says, what to me and to you? D.A. Carson, the New Testament scholar, explains, 
That expression, common in Semitic idiom, always distances the two parties. The tone is not rude, but it is certainly abrupt. Strictly speaking, the idiom simply says, what is common to you and to me? Carson continues, Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any human advice, any human agenda, or any manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming, and his only lodestar is his father's will. Period. Jesus pursues his plan without compromise. Here Jesus makes it clear that Mary does not have some special status on, by which to appeal to him. Some inside track as his mother. She comes to him with just such a notion. But he gently rebuts her request in order to pursue his agenda, his way. This undoubtedly was hard for Mary. It's a change of relationship. But she submits herself to it. She comes as his mother seeking his favors. She leaves as his disciple, trusting him, waiting on his agenda, leaving it in his hands to do what he pleases, and telling others, you just do whatever he says, not what I say. She comes as the mother kind but manipulative. She leaves as a daughter, trusting in his wise and capable way. Here we see the folly of those who would think that they might pray to Mary thinking she has some inside influence on Jesus. But here we see the folly of our own manipulation. You see, this is just the first of many times when people would try to manipulate Jesus to divert him from his agenda, to use him for their agenda. Sometimes it was by well-meaning family and friends, such as when Peter said, Oh, no, you should never suffer, Lord. Get thee behind me, Satan. Other times it was by his enemies with hostile intention. And those diversionary things continue to this very day. How often we... Come to the Lord with our plans, our agenda, our goals, asking him to bless them with success. Oblivious to whether they're his plans or his goals or his agenda. But Jesus won't have it. He will not compromise. He didn't compromise his agenda for his mother's sake, and he won't compromise it for yours either. I suspect that as we sit here this morning, some of us probably are playing let's make a deal with God. Okay, God, if you will give me this, then, then I will serve you and do what you say. If you will just give me what I want, if you will bless me with a better job, or if you will give me that certain boyfriend or girlfriend that I've got my eye on or, or, or if you will get me out of this miserable condition then I'll do whatever you say 
Jesus would rebuke you just like he rebuked his own mother. He calls you to be his disciple. To subject yourself to his agenda. To surrender your plans to his plans. Your concerns to his concerns. Your commitments to his commitments. Your will to his will. So if you call him Lord, I challenge you, let him be Lord. Stop telling him what to do. Stop, stop assuming you know what's best for your life. You know what he ought to do and how he ought to move and how he ought to provide and when he ought to do a miracle to get you out of some... No, if he's the Lord, then trust him and obey him. Jesus pursues his plan without compromise. And when he does, as we see in our text, his plans are good, they're not evil. No one ever trusted in him and found themselves let down and disappointed. Mary comes and she has to learn that she can't manipulate him, but does she go away disappointed? We don't know what she was asked, don't know what she was asking him to do, but I'm sure that what he did was way beyond her wildest dreams. And her friends, this young bride and groom, were they disappointed? <laughs> the wedding's still being talked about 2,000 years ago. Man, what a wedding! nor will you be disappointed. You surrender your plans to his. You trust the one who pursues his perfect agenda without compromising even with you. Jesus blesses life with joy. We see it at the wedding. He pursues his agenda without compromise. We see it in the way he dealt with his mother, but there's one other truth we need to see here. Third thing. Jesus purifies from sin by the wine of his blood. Jesus purifies from sin by the wine of his blood. As I look back over my life, you know, I found that I've been really close to some important events in my life, and I didn't really realize it at the time. I remember in 1962, I saw John F. Kennedy. And it was just a hassle because it was a traffic jam and whatever. And a little while later, he was assassinated in Dallas. Then in the early 60s, I was in Birmingham when Martin Luther King was there and was faced the police dogs and was thrown in jail and wrote the letters from the Birmingham jail. I didn't feel the weight of those things. I didn't see their impact at the time. I think that's often the case. We see things happen and profound things, and yet... We don't really comprehend them. We don't feel the weight of them. We don't see the impact at the time. And later, as we look back, we say, wow, that's what was going on. And I was right there, and I didn't really realize it at the time. I think that's what happened to the Apostle John here. He was at this wedding feast. He watched this. And as he watched what Jesus did, I'm sure he felt the joy that Jesus brought to this home. And as he heard this exchange between Jesus and his mother, I'm sure he felt the sting of Jesus' words and realized that Jesus is in control, not his mother. And we know from verse 11 here that when the water was turned to wine, the disciples put their faith in Jesus in a way that they hadn't before. All that happened at the time, but now John is writing this 50 years later. He's an old man. He's thinking back. He's living in the context of the life of the church. 
And I believe that at that point he understood something that he had not perceived at the time. That this miracle was not just bringing joy and setting an agenda, but this miracle was a sign. A sign of the truth of God's grace that Jesus purifies from sin by the wine of his blood. I'll show you where I get that. Verse 11 says it's a sign. This is the first of the miraculous signs that Jesus performed. So as we begin to study, we know that John has written this as, to, as a sign of something. So we have to say, a sign of what? What's it pointing to? What's the significance? As we begin to look for indications, for clues, then some words start to jump out at us. At least it did for me as I studied. For example, in verse 4, Jesus says, My time has not yet come. What time is that? Might that be a clue? And in verse 6, the water pots were normally used for ceremonial cleansing. Hmm, might that be a sign? And, and, in, and thirdly, as John writes, you have to think, here's John writing 50 years later, was the fact that it was wine that Jesus made, and that was a common thing in the life of the church, like it is this morning. Might there be any significance in that? And then this is a wedding feast. Is that occasion significant? Finally, in verse 11, it says that Jesus thus revealed his glory. Might that be a clue to the significance of all of this? Let me just go through the clues, those five clues for a second and show you. First of all, when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, what did he mean? What time are we talking about? Well, as we read the Gospel of John, we find that that's an expression used many times. In chapter 7, it says the Jews, not liking what he was doing and saying, sought to take him, but they could not because his hour was not yet come. A reference to his death it wasn't time yet. In chapter 8, he spoke in the temple, but no man took him because his hour was not yet come. Again, a reference to his death. Chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus said that the hour had come for him to be glorified. And he said it in, the, in reference to the hour of his death. And in chapter 13, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, washed the disciples' feet and began to talk to, about them of what? The hour of his death the next day. And in chapter 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son. Once more, he refers to the hour of his death on the cross. In every occasion in this gospel where it talks about Jesus' hour coming, it's talking about the hour of his death. You see, Jesus has just one agenda. It's true at this wedding feast. The will of his Father for which he's come into the world. Everything must be done in light of that coming hour. Even this first miracle is a sign pointing to that coming hour. And what is that hour to which everything points? The hour of Jesus' death on the cross for sinners. So even here at the beginning, we need to see that the signs are saying, Jesus purifies from sin by the wine of his blood spilt on the cross. Or take the little clue about the water pots. Here are these water pots used normally for ceremonial cleansing of the guests. Now those cleansings were just some of the myriad of ceremonial cleansings, purification rites practiced in Judaism, all of which could never really remove sin. But John the baptizer has just introduced Jesus the day before as the one 
who's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And now here's his first miracle where he takes water from the jars for the purification rites and turns it into wine, which was commonly used as a disinfectant because it cleansed even better than water. The significance is not lost on John as he reflects back on this. He understands that Jesus purifies in a way that the Old Testament law couldn't purify. Jesus purifies from sin by the wine of his blood. Of course, John's writing in the context of the New Testament church in a fellowship like ours where he meets every Lord's Day and they eat the bread and they drink the wine, representing Jesus' body and his blood spilt for us. You think as John thinks back on these miracles and realizes that the first miracle was wine from purification pots and then later there's a miracle about Jesus, the bread of life, providing bread. You think that John didn't ever think that here already Jesus is giving a sign of the wine and the bread of his blood and his body to be broken, given to purify us from our sin. And then it all happened at a wedding feast. The book of Revelation points to the coming glory as the wedding feast of the Lamb. The celebration as the Lord, the bridegroom, receives his bride, the church, for whom he's died. He's cleansed with his own blood. Indeed, the early church understood the Lord's Supper here as a foretaste of the great wedding feast someday. So John doesn't miss the sign that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry at a wedding feast he speaks of the hour of his death the time which hadn't come yet turns waters of purification into wine like is going to be used to signify his blood later in order to show us that he purifies from sin with the wine of his blood Finally, verse 11 says that in doing this miraculous sign, Jesus revealed his glory. Fifth little clue. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. And what was the glory? Do you remember? It was his grace. His grace. Grace that was so much greater than the law could ever be. And so now, a chapter later, we have a sign where the glory is revealed. And what kind of glory might we expect to see? The glory of his grace. And indeed, that's the glory we find here. Jesus turns water into wine, thus signifying the glory of his grace as he comes to purify us from our sin in a way that the law could not purify by the wine of his blood. This morning as we come to the Lord's Supper, all of these things, these shadowy bits and pieces, become very tangible and real. We don't see suggestions and hints anymore of what it is that Jesus might do. We've come to know the reality. Christ died on the cross for sinners and his body was torn open and his blood was spilled out on the ground in order to purify us, remove our sin, and make us right with the Father. We have it portrayed very tangibly in the bread and in the wine. 
How plenteous is this grace? Signified at the beginning and now signified before us again. How plenteous is this grace? We so desperately need the mercy that we cannot do without. Is it great enough for this day's problems? Is it great enough for this week's failures? Oh, it's more than you ever could dream. It's like having 150 gallons of wine for a dinner party. More than you would ever need. Grace greater than all our sins. This morning we come to celebrate what was signified. The very first miracle. That Jesus purifies us from our sins by the wine of his blood. This is the goal which he pursued relentlessly without compromise to purify us by his death. And this is the ultimate joy of the Messiah. They were made clean. They were made children of God. Jesus blesses life like no one else could bless it for he restores it and renews it. Makes us clean. Makes us new. So we come to the Lord's Supper to celebrate what he's done. To be refreshed and, to re and renewed in his purification and in the joy of the gospel. Let's come that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. And in this first miracle, Lord, we just see hints and bits and pieces that we have a hard time bringing all together. And yet we can see that something's about to happen. Now, Lord... We've seen what it is, and it's more than we ever dreamed that you have become man, gone to the cross, and made atonement for the sins of your wayward people. Now I've called those who even were not people to be sons and daughters, clean, purified, made new creatures. Oh God, it's with delight that we come to celebrate our Savior's death for us. I pray that you would refresh us by the supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.